that we now turn to in Romans, the third chapter, beginning with verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his holy word. Romans 3, beginning with verse 9. This is the word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, as we work our way on Sunday evenings, as we are able through the book of Romans, we see that Paul the Apostle now comes to the conclusion of what he has been arguing in the first two chapters. From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of this passage, the Apostle Paul has been proving that Greek and Jew are lost and in need of redemption through Christ, in need of the gospel. The Jew would expect this of the Gentile, that the Gentile is lost, of course. The Greek is lost, the Gentile world is lost. But they would not expect one to say this of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish world. And yet the Apostle Paul says in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. Paul easily could have turned to empirical evidence. He could have shown, he could have turned to the newspaper of his day, so to speak. He could have said, listen to the news broadcast of the day. Uh, You know I speak anachronistically. And he could have said, these are the things we see in the world. And indeed, he would have been right to have done so. But Paul does not do that. He turns to the sacred scriptures. Surely the Jew will hear the Bible. Surely they will hear the oracles of God. Surely they will hear their own law. And like a lawyer proving his case, now follows the summation of the evidence that he has been gathering together in these first chapters of the book of Romans. Yet he does not only, let us underscore, he does not only have the Jew in mind in this portion, for again, to remind you in verse 9, he says, are we Jews any better? And he says, both Jews and Greeks are all under the power of sin. And so the Apostle Paul includes all in this section of Scripture. Paul includes himself. He includes his readers. He includes the entire scope of the world. 
everyone, everybody is under the power of sin and the condemnation of the law of God. Do any of us, do I, do you, do those in Lakeland, as were some at Rome, do any of us think that by nature we have standing with God? The Apostle Paul knocks out every prop, and he demonstrates that we have in ourselves, by nature, no standing before the holiness of Almighty God. His point will be that we have standing only by grace. And the Apostle Paul, before he can unpack for us the beauties of redemption in Christ and the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus, through which we are made acceptable to God, through which alone we can be justified, must, must paint this dark and bleak picture of the sin of the world. His point will be that we have standing only by the sovereign grace of God through Christ alone, and all are under the power of sin and stand in need of this gospel of free grace. The entire human race is guilty before God, none accepted. And so we read in verses 11 and 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, when I was a boy, I read those words, and I heard those words read in church. And yet I was taught from the pulpit, in some settings at least, and in classes, the opposite of what Paul the Apostle teaches here. I heard that men indeed were seekers after God. I heard that men had freedom of the will. I heard that the only thing that kept a sinner away from the Lord Jesus Christ was the fact that he did not will himself to come. And yet when we come to what Paul the Apostle says, yes, men do not will to come. They will not and they cannot because our natures are bound in sin and in rebellion against the Lord. And so Paul teaches that great doctrine of original sin. There are no seekers after God. The only way in which we become seekers is because God seeks us by His grace and draws us by His sovereignty. And so as we come to this passage, we see that the Bible teaches the fallenness of humanity, and the Apostle Paul quotes the Psalms, mainly, Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, and some other passages, in order to show that all are under the condemnation of God in His holiness through the perfection of His law. By the way, once again, showing Paul's view of Scripture, that he searches the Scriptures and he calls Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, the law of God, not simply the first five books of Moses, not simply Exodus chapter 20. Now, how does the Apostle Paul show this? He shows man's fallenness is demonstrated in our speech. And so in verses 13 and 14, we read, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Isn't it telling that when Paul wants to show the sin of the world, Jew and Gentile, that the very first thing he does is to turn to our speech? Isn't that telling? Me, guilty, you say? 
or surely to ask the question is to answer it. When we read, for example, in Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, sin is not absent. When we could easily go to Titus 3.2, speaking to Christians, Paul must say, that you speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling. When we could turn to the third chapter of the book of James, and there we can see that it's largely about the abusiveness of the tongue and how we tear one another down rather than build up with our speech. And so the Apostle Paul, citing Scripture, says their throat is an open grave, an open sepulcher. That's not a pretty picture. Just as he describes man in Ephesians, the second chapter, as dead in trespasses and sins, man spiritually a corpse. So, he says, our speech is like an open grave. It's full of death and full of ugliness, and it's decrepit and deteriorating and shows our fallenness. Probably he means when he speaks this way, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive, that he has in mind the deception that is designed to entrap and to ruin other people, using the tongue in that manipulative way that kills and destroys the character of others. When he speaks of the poison of vipers under their lips, as one commentator put it, at the base of their fangs are equipped with sacks filled with deadly poison. We all know this to be true. We all can speak that way. We can talk. We can speak and our tongues become like quick adders that bite and that would destroy, filled with deadly poison. And our lips are filled with cursing and bitterness. This is a quotation from the, hundred, um, from the 10th Psalm, verse 7. Cursing comes from a bitter heart. In Psalm 10, verse 7, he speaks of the treachery behind the use of others in the way in which we speak. And he says, His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten And so behind the tongue is all of this deadliness and how we use others and speak against others and tear down others. And the Apostle Paul says, what more proof do you want? Do you want to know is the whole world under the power of sin? Just just look at how we speak to one another. Isn't that proof enough? But the Apostle Paul, again as a lawyer building his case, bringing up his summation, says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I give you another evidence. And that is, man's fallenness is shown by his actions also. Look again at verses 15 through 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we can look in history and we can see this. Man's fallenness shown by his actions. We may, for example, admire 
the stance of the 300 at Thermopylae. I certainly do. I think it's a magnificent thing. As a matter of fact, in God's providence, keeping the Persian army from taking over Greece and that portion of the world, in God's providence, enabled his plan to spread the Greek language through Alexander the Great throughout the world. It's a marvelous thing to consider. Nonetheless, even though we admire the 300 for their stand at Thermopylae, Spartan culture was one of the most brutal in history. In Sparta, they killed unfit babies. Unfit, they would take a baby. An elder would take a baby and would look at that newborn baby. And if there was any defect or what they considered to be a defect, that baby was exposed and left to die. In Sparta, the rite of passage for a young man was murdering a slave and not being caught. The crime was not in the murder. The crime was in being caught because they taught stealth and they wanted their warriors to be able to kill without being observed. We could turn from Sparta to the east. We could look at Syria. We could look at ancient Babylon. We could see in the civilized world of their day all of these various ways in which their actions show that they We're sinners. But we needn't go back to 5th century B.C. Greece. We, in our culture, murder the unborn for less reason than the Spartan did the newborn. Perhaps you say, I don't do this. I don't do this. Sin does not show the same way in everyone, but it shows. That's the point. For some, it's murder on 9-11. For others, it's the Boston Marathon. For another, it's Iran or Afghanistan, or maybe it's even in the office. And the way in which we use our tongues and actions to tear someone down rather than build them up, or to keep someone from promotion because we want it ourselves. And he's quoting from Isaiah 59, verses 7 through 8. There we read, Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them knows peace. Who is there that does not see that his actions as well as his speech, demonstrates that he is a sinner. Where is there not ruin and misery? Do we not see within our own hearts the material for it, within our own souls the material, so that we are capable ourselves of committing any sin that could be committed? And the reason for it? The reason is found in verse 18. Look at it. There is no fear of God before there eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In Principles of Conduct, John Murray makes the statement, it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. All of us by nature have reason to be afraid. 
Our culture is under the condemnation and wrath of God, and there is every reason to be afraid. And yet the height of impiety is shown in our culture, because even though there is reason to be afraid, there is no fear of God before men's eyes. Because sin forgets the presence of God. But even though sin forgets, sinners forget the presence of God. He is everywhere present. Yet in our culture, we continue to think that man is basically good. I never cease to be amazed. I read it in newspaper articles. I see it in magazines. I hear it in news broadcasts. I hear this kind of thing in one form or another all the time, frequently. That man is basically good. That man is basically a good, a good being. Yes, man was man in his pristine state, but now man has fallen, the scriptures teach. Now man is not a beast, though he may do beastly things. He's created in God's image, though fallen. There's a wonderful passage in Thomas Boston's Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, in which that great divine speaks of man as, as a once great castle, and now you see only the ruins. And from the ruins of that great castle, you can determine what man once was. But there is man lying in ruins like a once magnificent architectural work of art. Man is capable of great things still. He's capable of great architecture, as we've just mentioned. He's capable of, oh, great language. One of the things that I think is marvelous is that God gave us the New Testament in the Greek language. And I want to tell you something. The Greek language is something. It is really a marvelous thing. If you go to A.T. Robertson's grammar, it's 1,500 pages long. Huge tome of 1,500 pages. And it's just one little swath of the Greek language. There's always something to learn about Greek. And God gave us the New Testament in Greek. The Greek that was spread through the, through the world through Alexander the Great. The Greek that became koine, common. That came from pagan Greeks. You see, man is capable of wonderful things. The Greek language, sending man to the moon. Great marvels. But man, since the fall, nonetheless, does not desire God's glory. And this is the tragedy of the human race. That we can send a man to the moon for man's glory, not God's. That we can speak a great language or exegete a passage for our honor and not his. That we can build a magnificent building and that we can do this for the glory of man. Just as happened way back in the book of Genesis with the Tower of Babel and not for the glory of God. Even those things that man does that are considered by us to be good are just splendid sins. Benefit, a help, but in the presence of the holiness of God, they are but filthy rags. So what must be concluded from this biblical survey given to us by Paul the Apostle? Three truths. The first truth is this. The law of God condemns us all. 
verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law of God comes with inflexibility in all of its perfection, and the law of God brings condemnation to every single human being born into this world. We are, as he will teach in chapter 5, we are under Adam as federal head. We have received his guilt, and we also, according to this passage, have received the fallen sin nature. Now, when he says in verse 19 that the law condemns all, law here means the Old Testament. Does he mean just Jew or everyone in the entire world? Well, again, he makes it plain, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Remember in chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of of the Gentiles without the law. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So they didn't have the written law, but he goes on to say, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. And so everyone is condemned under the law of God. Did you recognize that that's what we sang together just a few moments ago? The law of God is good and wise and sets His will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. Its light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts that we may see our lost estate and seek deliverance ere too late. To those who help in Christ have found and would in works of love abound, it shows what deeds are his delight and should be done as good and right. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. Now that is Paul's point. The law condemns us all. second thing that we learn from this survey of the Apostle Paul from the Scriptures is that every mouth is stopped in the presence of the holiness and justice of God and before the inflexibility of His law that demands perfect personal obedience. The image is rather awesome, I think. When he says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, it's the image of someone standing in the presence of a judge. Imagine the fearfulness of standing before a human judge having committed a great crime and you have no excuse. Now multiply that and imagine it. Indeed, who could multiply it? It's an infinite consideration that we stand before the infinitely holy God and we have broken his law and sinned against him. And there we stand, every single one of us by nature, and we have No excuse, nothing to say, nothing, no answer, silence. Which leads us to see the third truth. We are not, cannot be justified, declared acceptable 
before God, we cannot be justified by our own works. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Why not? Why can we not be justified by works of the law? Because the law is the reflection of the infinite nature of an infinitely holy and just God. And the law of God brings with it the demand for personal, perfect personal obedience. The law is completely inflexible. It is absolutely good, reflective of God's good nature, but it is absolutely and completely inflexible. The law can show no mercy. Because of the law's demands and that perfect personal heartfelt obedience to which it calls us, you can write over this page the summary of what Paul is saying, doomed. We are doomed. We are doomed apart from Christ. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we will not see it, not really. Not in such a way that makes us cry out to Christ for grace. Had I strength of voice, I would read to you a statement of Adolphe Monod, that great French Reformed minister, in which to encapsulate briefly. He says, when I read these sorts of things in the Bible, for a long time I couldn't accept them. I couldn't believe them. I couldn't believe that of myself. But then the Holy Spirit began to work in my heart, and he showed me that I was a sinner. And I needed that external revelation from God to show me what I was really like. That's the work of the Spirit of God, and only the Holy Spirit can do it. And so, unbeliever... Let me put it plainly. Even though most of us, I think, are believers in the Lord Jesus, God alone knows the heart. If you are an unbeliever, the truth of the matter is that apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, whether you be Jew or Gentile, whether you have done the sorts of things that are condemned with actions such as theft or adultery, or whether you have served your neighbor, but never for the glory of God, because you don't know him. One infraction against the law of God demands the condemnation of that law. I don't want you to despair because we're going to hold up the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus. But if you do not trust in Christ, you have every reason to despair. Now, that's what Paul has been doing in these chapters. He's been demonstrating that all are under the power of sin. And next time we turn the page, and some of the greatest words that ever have been penned, as a matter of fact, we must read them because we can't simply stop here. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you be right with God? Then the way is through Jesus, by faith in Him alone, who shed His blood to redeem us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word.